Hi, this is Carol Bishop with Form Pioneering Design. Thank you for joining the Arch. The Arch is connecting and supporting the arts and the design community. Today, we're really fortunate to have with us Ingalil Walrus Ritter. Ingalil is a multidisciplinary wonder. She's a practicing architect with Rode. She's the Dean of Architecture at Woodbury University. She's the recipient of the 2018 Presidential Educator of the Year Award. She's a curator and director of the Wuho Hollywood Gallery. To begin, I'd like to welcome you, Ingalil, and ask you to give us an introduction. <laughs> Thank you for having me, Carol. I'm, it's a pleasure to be here. I am the Dean of the School of Architecture at Woodbury, and that's about 400 students at Woodbury University. So I've been an educator now for over 20 years. Been teaching at uh, started teaching at Cornell University. Um, I was the project architect on the Corning Museum of Glass, um, and then I started teaching at Yale University, then at um, the Bartlett in London, and then SciArc, and then I came to Woodbury about 15 years ago. So I've been there for a long time. When someone else asks you, what is your profession? What do you say? <laughs> so I usually say that I, I guess took me a while to um, admit that I am an educator first and foremost. Um, I'm an architect, a licensed architect, but 90% um, of my time and energy now goes to my students and my, my community at the, at the university. Um, but my love, uh, I still do. As you mentioned, I'm um, the director of the Woodbury University Hollywood Gallery, which is a, a multidisciplinary platform for experimental work, and it's a really wonderful place to invite people who um, I'm fascinated with their work, try to invite them into uh, the university community, introduce them to our students and our faculty, and provide them with a platform to show their work. So I would say director is probably my second, um, the second hat that I wear uh, after being an educator first. There's been some discussion about uh, that whole building going back mm -hmm. to the city. Mm -hmm. And um, how is that coming? So um, I'm glad you asked. So the, the building itself, that the Woodbury University Hollywood Gallery on Hollywood Boulevard, which is right on the Walk of Fame, shares uh, a building with LACE, the Los Angeles Contemporary Exhibitions. We've occupied that building for 25 years. That building and the parking lot behind it um, are owned by the Department of Transportation, the city. And the city is now developing a... Uh, low-income artists housing project about I think 170 units on that parking lot behind the building and so the last plans that I saw were showing that the building in front right on Hollywood Boulevard was was remaining intact and they had written Wuho, Woodbury University and LACE into the RFP which I thought was really wonderful because I, I do think that there are people in the city um, that we're working with who value the cultural uh, content that we bring to the boulevard. Hollywood has been a project for as long as I've been living in Los Angeles, which is now coming on over 50 years. Um, so I, I, it's exciting to be part of that project, and I hope that they will maintain us as the nonprofit artist collective as part of this larger project that they're undertaking. Well, that's great to hear, because um, obviously in Hollywood, they're just pulling down so many buildings and um, that uh, really affects um, everyone. That's, that's right, and I, and I will say that Mayor Eric Garcetti uh, was the council person for Hollywood, so he's very sensitive, I think, to the neighborhood. 
Um, and now uh, Mitch O'Farrell is the current council person for that area. And I'd, I'd say we were lucky with both of them in terms of being sensitive and um, passionate about art and culture. So I feel like they are sort of silent um, boosters for for the uh, our, our culture or the artists collective that we call ourselves. It's a group of nonprofits um, that have banded together and worked together, including theater and uh, LA Forum, for example. It also occupies that space, LA Freeways. So there's a whole bunch of artists groups that we collectively work together and it's a very positive environment. So you've been in uh, Los Angeles, you said, for a long time. Did you grow up here? Uh, that's. A tricky question. My, um, I grew up in Finland, uh, but my, um, I was born in the United States, and when we were a year old, my twin brother and I, uh, we ended up going back to Finland. And so what my parents did in their wisdom, my mother is Hungarian. She was a displaced person after the World War II, and it was incredibly important for her. She lived for seven years in a DP camp, which I think is amazing to think about. Um, thinking about all the refugees in the world today. And you can imagine in right after World War II, the amount of people who were moving around the world and who didn't have homes. And US was her home. And I mentioned that only because that's such a hot political topic. Um, and I'm proud to be then a child of somebody who then was um, given the generous opportunity of coming to the United States and really making something of herself. My father also was a uh, visiting scholar from Finland. And it was important for them that we were born in the United States. They had a really deep um, love for this place, but they also wanted us to be educated in Europe. And so I went to school in Finland. And um, it was an amazing opportunity. And um, so in a way, I feel a deep appreciation and understanding of the larger conversations that's, ha that's happening today. I feel kinship with a lot of my students, many of whom are DACA or from other countries and other cultures, and I think it's what makes this place great. And I veered into political territory um, as a way to answer your question, but I feel comfortable. I, I would say I feel very um, Scandinavian in some ways, and certainly my love for architecture comes from that culture. Um, but I also, you know, and I'm, I'm a proud American, so. Do you bring any of these ideas into the educational curriculum since the idea of uh, maybe a more world view of architecture is now penetrating all of the schools? I mean, how do you handle that with students in curricula? So, um, I, you know, I, I, I do, I deeply believe that architecture um, in particular needs diversity of voices, and those voices have to come from diverse cultures. I think you have to be incredibly open. It's the only way we're going to get innovation is to try to think differently and approach problems differently, and that's one reason I'm so passionate about um, my daughter now goes to, as I was just mentioning earlier, a bilingual school. Um, I think that this is what um, the world needs, more of those kind of uh, finding bridges and ways that um, different cultures can learn from each other in terms of thinking about problems and addressing um, you know, massive issues that we're as fa facing us globally now. So I would say that not a class goes by that I don't draw from that knowledge of, say, Scandinavian, um, you know, the social government system or housing or design. I just took a group of students, my colleague um, and I just took a group of students to Japan, for example, to travel. And it was just so fascinating to see a country that, number one, was so incredibly safe that you saw little three-year-olds on the subway 
completely alone going to school. Um, it was remarkable. And, um, but also a country that's completely understands the value of beautiful environments and good design and wanting somehow to inculcate my students with that so that they could then bring that knowledge back that a beautiful environment makes a good place for everybody. And um, that is something that I'm passionate about and making sure that people understand the value of good design, that it's not something that comes after as an afterthought that has to deeply embed itself in a culture and the way of thinking. The Germans call it a Gesamtkunstwerk, which is the complete work of art that life itself should have these beautiful um, environments, ways of thinking, music, culture, art, all of that above, um, but also architecture, design, all the way through to well-designed uh, uh, cities and um, governments. So, Do you find you have lots of catching up to do in L.A. because uh, of the way uh, our history has been, um, not really on um, the correct uh, timeline for trying to get beauty or trying to make a city I, that's beautiful. Yeah. No, I think um, I think it's one of the reasons I love Los Angeles is because it is a perpetual project. Um, you go to a city like Paris, there's nothing, there's not much we can do to improve that city. <laughs> I'm being slightly uh, facetious here. But I think that Los Angeles is a perpetual project, and I love that. And I think that it provides opportunities for you know, culture clashes and places where things aren't working and, you know, just coming to this neighborhood here in North Hollywood where, where I live in Echo Park. Um, you know, there's just so many rich neighborhoods that um, I, I think that's what makes L.A. great is its unfinished, deeply blemished quality. Um, I will share with you, my husband's German. We moved to Los Angeles from London. We were living in London for several years. Um, he's from, uh, lived in, had lived in Austria for 10 years. And, and he hated LA when we first got here. He despised it and he wanted to leave. So the first thing, you know, within a couple of years, he's like, when can we go back to Europe? Because this is a horrible, ugly city. You know, all the things that superficially that you see, he didn't get it. You know, he didn't really understand. It's complex to understand. There's no neighborhood. There's no civic areas. He wanted to, you know, be near the beach. Well, you know, if we were going to be close to the beach, we weren't going to be close to where we were working. He's, he fell in love with the city when he started flying. And it was from looking at the city from 3,000 feet in the air that he, that is, that's when LA is most comprehensible, I would argue. That looking, you begin to understand the patterns, you begin to understand these disparate neighborhoods, you see the topography, the, you know, the coastline and the mountains, and you begin to understand how Los Angeles was then formed. Historically, you see, you know, the little historical neighborhoods, downtown Union Station, Alvera Street, for example, is a, is a kernel um, from which this amazing, beautiful, wonderful, hideous metropolis has then grown. Um, and, and again, it's, it's a perpetual project, and that to me is what's exciting about the city. I see you really get excited <laughs> when you talk about um, L.A. and the idea of diversity. What about in an educational system where academia isn't always uh, so up to date or you have colleagues who may not share those values? As the head of the graduate program, how does that work? So, um, I, you know, I think, this, I think that's an important question. I think we all would 
I'm guessing all of my colleagues would say that we appreciate diversity and we want, um, you know, we are an inclusive environment. We want to be a welcoming environment to different ways of thinking, not just um, people from different cultures, but different ways of approaching problems. One of the conversations we've been having, and architecture has a long history of the studio environment as a, as a learning space, we're talking about that being an outmoded environment. I mean, the Beaux-Arts and, and the, um, you know, going back several hundred years, and, and it, it presupposes a kind of generosity of time and, um, you know, that I don't think certainly our students have anymore. And, and so there's the recognition that fundamental structures have to, have to change. It's not just content, but how we deliver material. Um, and I'm actually very excited by that conversation. And you know, it, it goes along with tools and different delivery systems. But it really is asking those very difficult questions. Is that, does architecture, how it's taught, have to change? And you can imagine how uncomfortable a conversation that is for those of us who have come through the studio system, who you know, are used to having these you know, long periods of time that we could sit in studio and ruminate and experiment and try out different, different things. That's not the reality that most of our students have. Our students are working. They're trying to make ends meet. They're supporting their families. These are non-traditional students. Um, they're not the us anymore. Um, and so trying to understand their backgrounds, their needs, but also what they've grown up with and how they learn, it's a very different paradigm of learning and absorbing. And I think that those are uncomfortable conversations to have, but I also find them extremely exciting because I do think that a small school like Woodbury, what I love about it is that it's nimble, that we can address problems like that, I think, um, and we can do it uh, fairly quickly and without a tremendous amount of bureaucracy. We were just talking about our colleague Randy St Randall Stauffer, who's our uh, senior vice president of academic affairs. He's now the provost at the university. I can walk into his office and we will have this deep conversation about the structure of courses and we will then plan out how do we, cha how do we make these whole scale changes. And you can imagine that at a large institution you know, that, um, of tens of thousands of students, how something like that would be incredibly difficult to do. Because students don't have as much time as they had in, in the past, is there any kind of push to do more online or social media? The, absolutely. Um, that is constantly coming up. Um, I do think that the contact, I have tried teaching hybrid courses. Um, it's not easy. Uh, and I think that especially in the arts and the creative fields, it's that paradigm change, how do we deliver that? And I do think that there are ways, so for example, we have a campus in San Diego and we have a long distance learning classroom. And so we, can, we have the luxury of being able to have in real time groups of students on both sides and then one instructor then in either one location or the other. That said, it's, it's not, it doesn't always work. When we try to graft on, on old ways of delivering and doing things, using new tools and technologies. I do think those new tools require us to deliver the, it's not a group conversation anymore. It's something very different. And it can be something like a, a video or a different type of media medium that we're using to deliver content. It's not desk crits, it's not pinups, it's something entirely different in that is what I like about the ed educational environment, that I have a group of incredibly knowledgeable, passionate colleagues who want to interrogate that question. That's not to say everybody wants to wade into that 
you know, there are will be resistors, just as there will be those who are enthusiastic to try different things. And that's what makes a community. And, and I do think that educational communities are rare. I think it's one of the few places that you will get a spectrum of people from radical backgrounds. I don't think we have enough of those spaces, you know, in in the world anymore. I think most of us live in bubbles, and um, I'm just as guilty of that as, as, as the next person where we don't confront people with radically different backgrounds and worldviews. And I do think that education provides that. I think faculty need to, we need to also um, change the way faculty um, operate and are, you know, hired. So I, I do think that this is an ongoing conversation uh, that we have in, in the academy and academies. And I think it's, it's a vital component to um, cultural knowledge and contributing to a larger cultural conversation. Well, another tradition in academia is to move from school to school. So if you're um, a dean at one school, it, it seemed almost imperative that you move to another city, to another country, to another. Is this a plan that you have? So I mentioned my CV, and I had taught at all these different schools. I feel like I did my moving before, and I've been very happy to be now at Woodbury for 15 years. I do think that's unusual. Um, there are a lot, you know, I, I think that a lot of people move vertically by moving. One of the reasons I'm still here is because, uh, as I mentioned, my love both for the city of Los Angeles and my reluctance to leave it now. Um, and, you know, I would mention that my husband's a pilot and one of his restrictions is he, there's only two other places he would consider moving, and one is in New Zealand and one is in um, Argentina, because those are both very uh, conducive climates to flying 365 days a year. So we now have a very limited—I'm being, being, I'm joking here, but um, there's, it's hard to imagine a city as— rich in opportunities as Los Angeles. And so when I think about moving, that is my first obstruction, is where would I go that would then offer me these, these opportunities? Um, my 11-year-old daughter, my mother's here. You know, I have, fa I have family fairly close by. I, I wouldn't want to lose those connections. Woodbury is another place where I have felt incredibly, as, as you noted, I started as a faculty member, became the assistant chair, became undergraduate chair, became graduate chair. I'm, every two years, uh, you know, I was then um, associate dean and then now dean. So it's almost as if every two years I have a new job. It has provided me that vertical ability that I can't imagine what more would I want if I moved to another location. So just that was a long answer to that question. Well, my next question was, how, how do you balance your family and career? <laughs> because I, you know, I... I um, I have mentioned him many times now. It's a true partnership with my husband. I'm really fortunate that he's enlightened. And um, I, I'm always envious of my uh, gay friends because they go into partnerships and marriages with a complete, um, with no social expectations. And I envy that. And I wish there was a way that um, heterosexual couples could do this, replicate that kind of uh, equality. I just, you know, as a human being, we have radically different expectations for for men, the traditional male role versus the traditional female role. I'm happy to see that disappearing really rapidly. I, I, this is exciting to see in my child and my students. 
Um, but I have a, an incredibly supportive partner, and we share everything. I do the drop-offs, he does the pickups, he does the cooking and cleaning. Um, actually, no, he does the cooking and shopping, I do the laundry. <laughs> so it's very, you know, this is your role, this is my role. And, and having that has made it possible for me to do things that I wouldn't otherwise be able to do. I will say I've dragged my daughter. She comes to every single gallery opening. She, you met her yes. at the down in Chinatown. Um, she's still a biddable and 11, and I don't know how much longer that's going to be, but my husband's another one who joins me on all all my travels and um, you know projects, and is is there in the back boosting me and giving me the confidence and the time that I need to do all these things. I was going to ask you again about uh, women in design because I see so many young women say they face challenges that their male counterparts never have to cope with. Um, do you find this to be true? And what do you say to your young female students uh, about these issues? Oh, that's such a loaded question. When I was working in New York, I worked there for about seven years, my, my then boss told me, don't ever talk about gender. Just, you're equal, it should never be discussed, don't ever, talk, don't ever open that door. And I would say that for many years, that's exactly what I did. I didn't go there. I just said, I'm just as good as men, I'm not gonna question it. And then, in my background, as I mentioned, was in building technology. I was always the only woman in a room. And for a while there, it was actually an advantage. And so I thought, OK, I'm going to use this as an advantage and um, leverage it. It's how Cornell came to me and invited me to teach on building technology. Yale got wind of it, started. And I suspect a lot of these opportunities were because I was the rare woman who was uh, addressing tech building technology as my area of expertise. Um, I came to Los Angeles and I, I then surrounded myself with women who feel very differently. Barbara Bester, Linda Tallman, Paulette Singley, Annie Chu, Sarah Lorenzen. These are people who are um, deeply committed to their womanhood. And um, I think that, and and wanting to talk about it and, and, and wanting to talk about the economic advantages and um, it's it's powerful and you know I've been engaged with the AIA we have a group of women every year we put on a conference called powerful and it's women taking a stand in a male-dominated profession and trying to um, kind of create a voice in the profession I hear from male colleagues that it feels exclusive um, and my answer to that is always, you know, as soon as our Senate and our president, <laughs> we have 50-50 represent representation all the way up the governmental systems, this is going to continue to be a conversation. And I will say that the burning issue, I think at school, gender is less of an issue. I think diversity is a much bigger conversation to have. And I feel like I can appreciate it as a woman. It's easier to be able to then talk about diversity um, than I suspect a white male would be able to then talk about the plight of some of our uh, minority students, for example. And I think, again, it now suddenly, again, it's an advantage. So I, I think that I would respond, and I don't hear students talking about gender inequity because I do, I'm excited also by this idea of spectrum of gender, that there's, it's not a binary conversation anymore. Um, and I think that that 
is I, I think that students' economic inequity is far greater challenge for them, and that those that's what I want to address is the is the diversity questions and the economic inequity. I'd like you to expand on that because so many students just don't have the money to go to college, let alone to go into a program in a private school, and um, in Europe, in Germany, you can go free. So. What do we need to do to help this idea of learning a great profession like architecture be available to more diverse people? So um, this is something. So Woodbury's mission, I would say, in one, if, if in one word, is access. And as you know, having taught there, our students are local. They are majority minority uh, students. They, we are a Hispanic serving institution. We have students from all um, cultures and uh, economic, uh, also the economic spectrum. Here's the reality that I think doesn't get explained in the media very well. We are a private, nonprofit university. There are for-profits out there, and those are closing very rapidly. Those are the schools that are closing very quickly. As I think they should. Yeah, they're dangerous. Nonprofits are you taking the money and putting it right back to the students, and the we do it in a very direct way. So our tuition right now is thirty-eight thousand a year. That sounds like an incredibly high sticker price. On average, our students are getting, and this is documented because we have to report this to the Department of Education, are getting twenty-eight thousand dollars of aid a year on average. So now suddenly we're talking about ten thousand dollars a year. So the higher the GPA is, the more aid and support that they're getting. And the aid comes in the form of federal grants and state grants, but it also comes in the form of university aid, where the university will discount a student's tuition based on merit. And that's we can have a conversation about merit and equity and educational opportunities, because most of my students are, I'd say a majority are from the public schools, and that's a whole other conversation to have. That said, I think the sticker price is far less than what, at least at a school like Woodbury, um, than you would imagine for a small private university. And here we are providing students with one-on-one -on -one Education. They are getting to know our faculty. We have an incredible talent pool here in Southern California, in San Diego and Los Angeles. These are small class sizes. Compare it to, I went to UCLA. My, I have students, you know, who are colleagues who at Pomona and USC. Wonderful schools. Those are vastly different environments. I was a lonely co-ed at UCLA. Those were the four worst years of my life as an undergraduate at UCLA. I was, I was lonely. I didn't have a peer group. I, didn't, I was looking for myself. I remember how sad I was. And if I had had a school like a small private university that I could go to, um, I, I would have chosen that. And so when I go out and talk to students, I first of all advocate for architecture as a place to study, and then I will talk about all the opportunities for studying. So there, there is, and I just mentioned them: UCLA, USC, Pomona, um, uh, Woodbury, and SciArc. Those are the if I, Otis Art Center. They also have associated and allied programs. Most of my students have gone to community college, and I think that that is a wonderful path. Two years of community college, three years of a university, you now are ending with a really wonderful degree, but you also now have um, uh, faculty and, and professionals that are now your allies and are going to be the ones helping you get into the profession. And so for that, if you think about the education as an investment, and clearly I've dedicated my life to education, and I will be 
um, to the, my dying day, believe that that is something that every person has a right to. I think it's something that everybody should have a right to. I mentioned in my background, and so I think Europe has, has it right that uh, higher education is something that everybody um, should have that opportunity to, to go to. And so I feel very comfortable at a place like Woodbury. It's a, yes, it's private. Yes, it's a, but it is also a nonprofit, and we do everything we can to reduce the sticker, sticker price for our students. It's interesting you talked about being lonely or trying to find yourself at UCLA. Apparently, uh, there's been a lot of um, issues that we've seen in the newspaper uh, on NPR dealing with the fact that urban loneliness has become a very big issue. And this was before social media. <laughs> so before. <laughs> sometimes I think that doesn't help. Yeah. Um, it, it really depends. But do you see architecture and design as being a way to help some of these issues, to um, bring people together? Yeah, or that's a really thoughtful question. I think one of the things, when I, when I was an undergrad, I was not an architecture student. I was studying, actually, engineering, um, and, then I, and then history. So those were, I was a dual major. Um, and they were not communities in the way that an architecture studio is. We were just talking about different delivery methods. I think the most valuable experience of the studio environment and studio learning is, of course, your peer group. And my closest friend, Doris Sung, is somebody I went to grad school with. You know, and she now teaches at USC. Um, but this is these are deep, and and again the spectrum. Just think about the spectrum of backgrounds. But all those students who are in that studio are passionate about designing, and you can imagine that forming that close knit relationship. You're going through the pain and anguish of studio and classes, you know, structures and history, theory, you know, all the all the associated. Um, uh, uh, challenges of the education process, and these this this community, and this is one reason I love Woodbury is we have our students really form strong bonds, strong relationships, and they and those are lifelong that they then carry through them. They're learning so much from each other, um, and that I think is an incredibly powerful uh, force to argue for maintaining some type of studio. Uh, uh, environment in which students can learn. Well, let's talk about the bigger picture. You can talk to people in New York who have never met anyone in their building. You can see people in Los Angeles. We now have a people walker because they're so lonesome they need somebody to speak to. <laughs> there are so many issues about the way environments are set up and the way architecture works that I'm wondering if there's any push at Woodbury or in your program to use architecture kind of as um, a healing social entity. So I was talking earlier about um, our love and disdain, or love for and disdain for this, this city. I, I think that the city has a reputation for not providing those social spaces. Um, and I absolutely think design can and should play an intrinsic role in addressing exactly those, providing those spaces where people come together, whether it's a civic park like um, the one Deborah Sussman designed, Grand, Grand Park downtown, which I love that park, um, or a, a, a restaurant. When, when my husband and I just this summer were in um, we were in Germany, in Munich, and you know we went to these little pubs, and we were saying, you know, there are no pubs in. And when we lived in London, we had our local 
it was called the Crack House. It was an Irish local. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have local pubs in Los Angeles. Not not in the same way. You know where you it, it's called the Stammtisch, where you have your regular table, where your mug with your name on it is on the wall behind the counter. Where it's a place outside of your home that you then have a an out a family outside of your personal space. Um, Japan has that, you know. The, there's this wonderful book that my uh, I was sharing with my students there because the homes are so tiny that in Japan there's a very rich culture of using the city as the living room. I mean, that's being a little bit um, uh, uh, glib, but you were talking about the role that architect and architecture and design has in trying to bring people together, and I think that's you know, as I was saying, it can be in small scale, like a like a pub or a restaurant in some sort of um, public space, or it can be something of, of a public space that will draw people to it. Our beaches, I guess, in a way, could, could be argued um, that could, could provide that opportunity. Uh, and they, they don't really, and I think that more of those spaces should be cultivated. Annenberg is <laughs> yeah. the one space that I know of down in Santa Monica that actually becomes a sort of a, a mixing space for people. So do you think architecture could... Uh reorganize our beaches uh, absolutely we'd have to yeah, we'd have to let, uh, ask some of the people who own quote uh, in quotations beaches to let go and that was uh, it's interesting you know having an 11 year old you know moving back to a city that you grew up in and coming with somebody who comes from a radically different culture my husband, you know, he was fascinated by the fact, number one, were the beaches, that they were so inaccessible. And here you have this amazing amenity that should be an urban civic amenity, and it's not. And to me, the conversation about the L.A. River, I think, is you know, so timely, and it's, it's so high time for us to address that as a civic space. Um, but the beaches is one. The other thing he was really fascinated by, which I think is really f- funny, is, is the religious spaces. And you would drive down, you know, you drive into East L.A., and there's a mechanic shop that's now been converted into a church or, you know, the Angelus Temple. It took him forever to realize that's actually a religious <laughs> space. And so if you look at the variety and, and the way we define religion, I think, is very different than the formal religious spaces of, you know, high... Catholicism or Protestantism. I think that those are other possible spaces. I think architects tend to be afraid of this, you know, spiritual spaces, but I do think that they could provide some of that or address some of that loneliness issue that you were referring to earlier. And absolutely, we need more architects designing them. So, <laughs> so a lot of issues become trendy. Um, live in a small house live in a garage um, then it'll be sustainability and then it'll be preservation and then it'll be um, everyone should have a birdhouse Uh, so um, (laughs) how do you deal with um, trends and how do you recognize which ones are important and sustainable for education you know that's something that you grapple with every day um, especially with social media now so powerful Although I also look back, you know, I'm, I went to school in the, in the late 80s. Postmodernism was very popular then. Um, I was disdainful of it. I was super fascinated by John Lautner and Zaha Hadid and, you know, Frank Gehry's was just starting up. But, you know, I was in Tom Main. These were the ones that I looked at. I was fascinated by the Finnish architects um, that I would say were 
and this is not the correct historical term, but the, the organic school and also the deconstructive. So, so, but what I find super fascinating is right now postmodernism is now back, you know, in the conversation. And Chris Hawthorne, you know, just did a whole, whole series of lectures talking about the 80s and the 90s and that being preserved now as hist- history. I think that, you know, architecture speaks in a powerful, powerful way. And whether it's trendy or um, and of the moment, I think that, you know, if it brings pleasure and if it brings some sort of, um, you know, joy to people, I'm fine with it. You know, I have no problem then sharing that that with my students just as I would the can what you know we call the canon or the historical traditional uh, architecture. Who who are we to say what will then provide some of these wonderful you know spaces for the people who uh, 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 who live in them? I, I appreciate postmodernism, basically saying, you know, modernism has gone down this path of, you know, cold and hard and, and unwelcoming spaces. That's a conversation that we have to have, whether we agree with it or not. And I'm, I'm not saying I do or not, because I'm the first one who we were just visiting um, Provence, where I saw Eileen Gray's house. And it was the first time I'd ever seen it. And we had just been to see the Alvar Alto house literally a week earlier, one of which is a super warm modernism. And the other one is, you know, the the modernism that was the machine, you know, ocean liner modernism. Oh my gosh, both of them were so amazing. And, you know, I was just, and I, words can't express the, the appreciation I felt for both of those houses, especially understanding the context in which they were built and, and, and designed and, and, the, and the motivations that those designers had for making the decisions. And, and to me, it's those motivations that are far more interesting then talking about trendy and non-trendy. Well, why why do you call this trendy? And you know, and and why is th- does this architect or artist or designer feel a need to do this particular style? And I think that's the conversation we should be having. If you weren't an architect and educator, what would you be? Oh my gosh. Um, well, I've already been starting to think about my next chapter. And so we just launched a year of housing and um, at Woodbury University. And it's on multiple levels. I think it's a conversation. Of course, there's not a day goes by that we're not personally affected by the housing issue here in Los Angeles. Um, it's also an issue that address that my students are. Fo- fo- I mean, these are housing, and a lot of them are housing insecure students. I mean, a lot of my faculty would probably be arguably. It's it's frightening to think about how, um, you know, how the issue is affecting each of us. So I became really interested. I'm becoming super interested in this thinking. You know, is that this is a project that crosses the divide between so- social issues, government, and design, and. I think that that is a really rich conversation, and I think the older I get, the more interested I am in having conversations with people outside of the discipline. I will say that that's a, um, I, you know, as, that's a trajectory that I see in my students as well. You know, they're, as students, they're really only interested in their own voice. When you get older, you start to appreciate having the multiple voices as part of the conversation. So, the serious answer to your question would be. my next chapter or I would be really interested I know as a student I was super um, disdainful of planners and urban urban designers and I am so appreciative of what they do and I think that they need design and architecture voices that can contribute and and and, um, be participate in that the short um, 
answer to that question is um, I love fashion. <laughs> so that would be another direction that I would love to, if I hadn't gone into architecture, I never, never even considered it. Um, the only other thing I considered was, phys was physics. I was passionate about physics. So as a young, young, serious scholar, um, I thought physics was amazing. And, but then I quickly reverted back to architecture. Um, and I was pretty single-minded, probably since about nine years old, I wanted to be an architect. So before that, it was probably ballet. <laughs> and, and that won't be your next uh, career? No, that will most definitely not be my next career. Um, but I, I love, um, I love, you know, design. And I think, I, I think of fashion as an extension of architecture in a funny way, or not as architecture as an extension of fashion. I think that, you know, how we, um, you know, it's just one more layer that surrounds us, and um, it's it's one that speaks really. It's more to other people than to ourselves, and and I I'm not sure people think of it that way, but I, I like thinking about that, and I think there's there's something to interrogate about that. Do you know any architect who hasn't invented or designed a pair of glasses? Exactly. <laughs> or jewelry. I'm wearing you know jewelry that's all designed by architects, and um, in fact last. December, my colleague Nina Briggs and I, we did what we call the small-scale architecture store at Woodbury, and we invited uh, at our gallery, and we invited all the designers and architects we knew who are making things, beautiful objects, whether it's ceramics or, or drawings, or um, there, was a, there were a lot of wood objects, which I found really interesting. Um, note cards, a lot of jewelry, um, clothing, and it was anything that's basically that you can carry out and give as a, as a Christmas gift to somebody else. But it was a smash success, and we're, we're cre recreating it this, this year again. I feel like in every architect there is a budding jewelry designer or a budding ceramicist or a budding, um, you know, somebody, uh, mobiles and, and um, kites. And, you know, it was wonderful to see all the creative um, projects that, that, that architects do on the side. So do you have any advice for young designers starting out? So this is, you know, I don't think people, I don't, th I think it's very hard for young people to <laughs> listen. I just know what it was like as a young person. My advice to everybody, including my daughter, is just be open. Open, and this is why I think I've been successful, and it's only because I'm open to ideas and people and, um, you know, human kindness and, you know, and generosity of spirit. And, and that is something that I wish there was a lesson in that. How do, how do we teach that? Um, and the only way I know how is through example. And believe me, every night I go home and think, oh, my gosh, I was so rude to that person. Or, you know, every day is a new project where I think, okay, I can, I can try to be a kinder, uh, better person. Um, but I do think the openness to opportunities, to not be single-minded. I think there's a lot of different ways that you can um, get to your chosen path. You know, I see people who are single-minded, and I think to myself, you know, you're not, like, keeping yourself open to other opportunities that could bring you even greater satisfaction. Um, and that's not an easy, easy thing to communicate or to learn. And so that's just going to be a lifelong desire of mine to try to get more people more students to be more open to each other and to new ideas well yeah curiosity is Absolutely. one of the great great um qualities a person can have but Absolutely. can you teach it that's the question and and you know trying to find what is it and this is this is what i love about being an educator what what is the thing that that student will turn that student on We'll turn the switch on. And sometimes it's traveling. Sometimes it's a book. 
that they read, or poetry. I have a, a rap poet, poet right now who's fascinated by finding different ways of articulating his ideas. Sometimes it's um, you know a philosophy class. You know you don't know where that motivation is coming from. And what I love is trying to find that thing that will turn them on and and then watch the, the ideas then blossom because they've now in, been enriched by some other strain, something else that that wasn't an, a part of their essence and now will be from that, that, that point forward. Well, as I'm wrapping it up, I'm just going to ask you one more question, and that is, what do you want to be remembered for? That is such a difficult question. Um, you know, my very close um, colleague Norman Millar passed away a few years ago and we held a celebration of life and I was so moved by um, everything that was said about him and it's times like that that you think oh what's my memorial going to be like um, <laughs> better start planning I don't Ryan. know That's just, it, I, know, I mean it's, it's not an easy conversation <laughs> to have but I'd like to be remembered as a passionate educator um, and somebody who cared about my students. And I think that um, every day, as I said, is something, you know, when you give of yourself to other people, that's not to say that I'm, I'm, I'm certainly very ambitious and, you know, I have personal ambitions, but ultimately what brings me the greatest joy is to find ways to um, support others. And that, that, I guess, would be what I'd like to be remembered for. So. Well, it has been great talking with you, Ingle, and I want to thank everyone for listening, and please join us next time on The Arch. This is Carol Bishop signing off for Forum Pioneering Design, and we want to thank our sound producer, Bruce Barker, and producer Jerry Levy for helping us make this happen. Mm-hmm.